a roundup of the main business news from China and elsewhere. This is Global Business. From CGTN headquarters here in Beijing, this is Global Business. I'm Sean Vandenberg. Coming up on the program. China-EU relations have been in focus at an event in Brussels marking 20 years since the two signed a comprehensive strategic partnership. One of the world's leading industry exhibitions in general aviation, Aero, kicked off its regional event Thursday in China's southern coastal city of Zhuhai. Over in the U.S., the roads and the air are getting busy ahead of this year's Thanksgiving. China and France are holding their sixth high-level meeting to discuss people-to-people exchanges. French Minister for Europe and Foreign Affairs Catherine Colonna is in China on a two-day visit and will meet with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. This is Colonna's first visit to China since she took up the post in May 2022. China says it looks forward to deepening ties with France in fields including education, culture, technology, healthcare, and sports. The two countries mark the 60th anniversary of diplomatic ties since in 2024. China-EU relations were in the spotlight recently at an event in Brussels marking 20 years since the signing of a comprehensive strategic partnership. China says the two sides have witnessed more examples of cooperation than differences, and bilateral relations have a strong impact on the global economic outlook. Rebecca Bunhan reports from Brussels. Officials gathered in the heart of Europe to discuss relations between the EU and China. Their complex relationship has long involved both elements of cooperation and competition. Today, against a challenging geopolitical backdrop, delegates at the forum said both aspects are here to stay. But there have been many positive developments in the two decades since the EU-China Comprehensive Strategic Partnership was launched. Since then, China-EU relations have prospered with close exchanges and dialogues and enhanced levels of cooperation, which has brought tangible results to both sides. The theme of Thursday's discussion was 20 years on, what's next for EU-China relations? Mr. Kong said that there are more examples of cooperation and differences between both sides, but those differences need to be addressed. We hope that the EU and its member states should not develop their relations with other countries at the expense of China-EU relations or at the expense of China's interests. The EU and China are at odds over some matters, such as trade, although they are key economic partners with $2.5 billion of bilateral trade a day. China is concerned about the EU's launch of an anti-subsidy investigation into imports of electric vehicles. And the EU has been trying to reduce its economic dependence on China, including for crucial commodities. We see China as an essential partner, but also depending on the areas as a competitor and a systemic rival. We are major economic partners. Our bilateral relationship is integrated and important. And as major, major economic actors, the course we set has a strong impact on the global economic outlook. There was also agreement at the forum that cooperation between the two global players is required to help address some of the main issues that the world faces. These include climate change, conflict and the need for development. The consensus was that engagement and dialogue between the EU and China is essential to strengthening the long-standing relationship. Rebecca Bunden, CGTN, Brussels.
This is just in. The Chinese Foreign Ministry said on Friday that the country will roll out unilateral visa-free policies to six countries, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain, and Malaysia, on trial from December 1, 2023 to November 30, 2024. Now, for more on China-EU cooperation, we're joined by Professor Zhang Gong from the University of International Business and Economics. Hi there, Professor John. So, in light of Ambassador Fouton's speech and the recent visit to China by the French Foreign Minister, what are your thoughts on the achievements of China-Europe cooperation, and what are the prospects for China-EU relations in the future? Well, I think uh, these two events you just mentioned um, are very good uh, contributors to better relations between the two uh, to the two sides. I think uh, Europe is very important to China, and also China is also very important to the European Union. Um, and I think, particularly, you know, the statement from um, Ambassador Fouton uh, reiterates essentially the um, consistent position from China side that uh, you know we are um, interested in maintaining a good relationship with Europe. Union as the uh, Europe is our largest trading partner, um, as well as uh, our range of issues. You know, we have uh, things of common interest uh, and um, in uh, things that are of differences. Uh, I think we should uh, resolve them uh, as we can. Um, and uh, um, I think the notion of a systematic rival, as described by. Uh, the new French uh, foreign minister is is something of a myth, and I don't think it's a uh, uh, should be standing in the way of continued friendship between the two sides. <clears throat> yeah, thank you so much for your insights, Professor Gong. Please stay with us for more discussions later in the program. China is ready to work with partner countries to extend cooperation under the Belt and Road Initiative. The National Development and Reform Commission has released a document or blueprint outlining plans for international cooperation under the initiative in the coming decade. Wang Mengjie has more. In a decade since it was launched, China's Belt and Road Initiative has created new international economic corridors and infrastructure projects around the world. By June this year, China has signed over 200 BRI cooperation agreements with more than 150 countries and 30 international organizations across five continents. China's government says in the next phrase, the focus will be on even higher quality development. Calling for more BRI cooperation in key relationships so as to ensure innovation and place equal emphasis on development and security. China will enhance the connectivity network to ensure smoother and more efficient operations and ensure that a new system takes shape to support China's open economy at a more advanced stage. The road ahead is not smooth. There have been project delays and other challenges. Chinese officials say they're determined to learn from past experience and improve future Belt and Road projects by tightening the selection process and controlling risks. Looking to the future, BRI projects will focus more on industrial transformation, deepening cooperation in areas such as green and digital, promoting information sharing and capacity building in sustainable, low-carbon and innovative development. It's estimated that in the next 10 years, Belt and Road partner countries could increase trade volume by 2.5 trillion U.S. dollars. The Chinese government's blueprint for future cooperation under the initiative states that China will continue to work on what it describes as small yet impactful flagship projects. In October, representatives from more than 130 countries gathered in Beijing to discuss the cooperation under the Belt and Road initiative. 
One month later, today's blueprint has created new momentum and consensus on the need for creativity and new opportunities over the next 10 years of the BRI. China says it will continue working to build a global community of a shared future. Wang Mengjie, CGTN, Beijing. Now for more on the Belt and Road Initiative, we're joined by Chu Qiang, Research Fellow of Beijing Foreign Studies University. Now Chu Qiang, in light of the recent release report on the development outlook for the BRI in the next decade, what's your assessment of the achievements of the BRI and its prospects? Well, I think yeah, BRI absolutely have achieved a lot. As we have already discussed before, uh, BRI uh, covering so many countries. We have leveraged up uh, more than hundreds of billions of US dollar projects. We've been built uh, all kinds of infrastructures and all kinds of the soft mechanisms for the participant countries. Uh, for example, we'll build the uh, water dams, uh, digital devices, uh, infrastructure, as well as the water sewage system, power plant, and etc. They can actually, you know, created lots of the, you know, touchable and available goods for the local people in those countries. And also in the future, we're going to see uh, through the blueprint, we're going to see uh, more of the new element will be added into it. For example, it's going to be greener. Uh, in the past, we actually uh, say we're going to build the infrastructures for them to solve their basic demand. But in the future, it's going to be greener and more of the climate change, uh, you know, oriented as well as to be more digitalized, smarter, as well as more sustainable. In the future, uh, we're going to have to introduce in more of the private sector into this uh, deeds and to help more of the people to be, you know, gaining the uh, success and achievement from it. So in the future, I think this Belt and Road Initiative will uh, accommodate it to uh, more of the new challenges and new changes. Yeah, and you mentioned so many countries are participating and what tangible benefits and opportunities has the BRI brought to the these participating countries in terms of their development and prosperity? Or for example, uh, in the past, I like I mentioned that we basically try to solve their basic need, like the waters, the powers, and etc. But how can we help them to face the future and to build their own capacities? Right now we've been seeing, we've been trying to help those participating countries to build their own capacities facing the future, for example, like the EV. Well, a lot of the, uh, uh, in the past, when a lot of the developing nations try to help the developing nations, they try to well, probably just give them the capacities which have already been you know, given up in their own country. But China always tried to bring the most cutting edge technologies and the platforms to help the recipient countries. For example, so EV uh, platform, EV factories, solar panel uh, capacities, as well as the uh, other kind of the uh, technologies to actually help them stand on their own feet, give them a hands up. So more and more kind of the stories are going to happen uh, within the Belt and Road Initiative and uh, with the local recipient countries. So in the future, they're going to become one of the uh, local builders and the local capacity providers of their own. And now looking ahead, what are the prospects for uh, increased involvement of private enterprises in the BRI? Well, I think this is actually a very good question. Um, in the past, I think most of the uh, successful stories happened in the whole world, always following a certain kind of trajectory. The public lay down their framework and a ground job, and then the private sector will fill in to achieve sustainability. Well, for example, in America, when they try to you know, build a way towards the cosmos, towards the universe, so the NASA will lay down the ground job for it, and then introduce it in the private sector. And in China as well, I think in the uh, BRI, 
I think um, you know, the government will work together and or, or the state-owned enterprises will get involved in the first uh, uh, phase so that everybody can align with each other the standards, uh, the working model, the overarching mechanism for cooperation so that we can, you know, everybody can get on the same page. And then we will introduce in you know, a private sector because they will know and they can fill in, uh, you know, the blanks that the, uh, the government players will can never touch. So recently we've been seeing more of the private sectors has already been in this process. The BYD and Huawei is a big name, as you already hear from it. And also if you travel around Africa and ASEAN nations, you will find thousands of hundreds of the, you know, very small sized or medium sized enterprises, Papa Mama Shop and even just participating in this BRI initiative and try to do their job and find their new opportunities, not only from China, but also other local SMEs are also being very actively to be part of this. So in the next 10 years, I think the private sectors will become very, very important, the pillar to support this whole framework. And also they were going to take the major role contributing to the local countries. Very interesting. Thank you so much for insights. Chu Chang, Research Fellow of Beijing Foreign Studies University. Digital trade is at the center of discussions in eastern China's Hangzhou city. Officials from China and other countries, as well as professionals and business representatives, exchanged ideas on better trade facilitation in digital free trade zones at a seminar held during the second Global Digital Trade Expo. Discussions focused on facilitating e-commerce and cross-border data transfer, as well as guaranteeing security of personal information to meet the high standard trade rules required by the DEPTA, the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement. DEPA was signed by Chile, New Zealand, and Singapore in June 2020. China formally submitted an application to join the agreement in November 2021 and is now actively pushing forward the negotiations. Digitalization is helping to promote green intelligence and precision manufacturing in China's steel industry. Guangyang visited An Steel Group in Liaoning Province to find out how this is happening. Walking around one of China's oldest steel mills, you can hardly see any workers. Machines are the best friends of Zhang Minggang, the production scheduling manager in the coating workshop. From delivering, loading to storage, pretty much everything was done manually before. Nowadays, the whole coating process is automated. This year, and still rolled out a digital manufacturing plan prioritizing advanced technology and equipment, stable supply of resources, a higher level of automation and emissions reduction. The group's digital transformation calls for an integrated solution, building a system that connects devices, machinery, and the people. Changes are seen not only in the production plants, but in areas like research and development as well. It took us five years to establish a system that fits into every aspect of research and development. Under the new platform, metallurgical testing, material design, evaluation, and standard setting are hooked together. Away from the production plants, the group has also upgraded the corporate compliance program for its subsidiaries. The all-in-one system is designed to reduce the risk of legal action or regulatory penalties for subsidiaries that comply with legal and ethical standards. The new system upholds the principle of building one unified platform, sharing one database and adhering to the same standards. The evaluations given by the program now plays a crucial role in decision-making. 
China accounts for over half of the world's steel production, and to survive in the challenging market environments of the metals industry, experts suggest mega trends such as digitalization and decarbonization must be made a priority. Guangyang, CGTN. One of the world's leading industry exhibitions in general aviation, Aero, kicked off its regional event Thursday in China's southern coastal city of Zhuhai. The Aero Asia show highlights general aviation, a category of civil aviation other than air transport. It's also affiliated with the 40-year-old trade show that started in Germany. Aero Asia features the latest aviation consumption trends and technology breakthroughs of unmanned aerial vehicles. The show has attracted over 140 exhibitors from industry heavyweights such as Avic General Aircraft, Bell Helicopter, and Boeing Business Jets. Aero Asia runs until Sunday. It returns to Zhuhai every two years. Now let's bring back Professor Zhang Gong from UIBE to get his take on the international digital trade front. So, John, how has the shifting of global economic landscape and also uh, operational challenges in Southeast Asia impacted the perception of China's manufacturing competitiveness among multinational companies, particularly um, in finding alternative markets in China? Well, um, you know, China is a manufacturing powerhouse. Um, it's a huge base, industrial base here in China, and I think in general, um, you know, Chinese companies are fairly uh, competitive. Uh, with the digitalization trend, I think the entire manufacturing sectors are undergoing a profound change. As an you know, example, your program have already demonstrated in the steel industry is a very good example um, that the entire the value chain, the entire production process, distribution process. Um, as well as the you know sales and marketing channels, stuff like that, they are all integrated uh, through a digitization process, and you know this calls for a, um, a fundamental shift in my view of the uh, of the business model, how the companies are run, and how the manufacturing is being done. So I think in this regard, uh, you know Chinese companies are, are moving ahead in, at a very advanced level, and I think uh, it still remains very competitive on international markets uh, vis-a-vis uh, the potential investment opportunities in Southeast Asia markets, as we have said. Mm-hmm. And um, how significant is digital finance in facilitating international trade for especially SMEs, uh, considering how digitalization can help reduce trade costs and also improve efficiency? Yeah, well, this is an entirely different matter. I think um, you know the, one of the uh, important phenomenon that we have seen is that uh, the international trade itself um, is, is is getting more and more sort of uh, digitized uh, in the sense that um, uh, previously, um, you know, uh, uh, piecemeal kind of a trade patterns are not being supported in the past, but now all of a sudden it becomes uh, uh, possible, uh, especially uh, catering to small and medium-sized businesses. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, the e-commerce application in the international trade area all of a sudden opens up huge opportunities for many small and medium-sized businesses. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, this is basically a platform-based economy. Um, and uh, companies like Alibaba, I mean, they are at the forefront of uh, opening up these trade opportunities between China and many um, countries, uh, especially, I think, in um, developing countries. Uh, and these are opportunities for, um, you know, medium, small-sized farmers, uh, these businesses, uh, they are exporting opportunities into the greater China market. Yeah. And what components make up the digital infrastructure in the trade sector and what factors should be considered uh, when designing these trade ports? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, at a very fundamental level, we need a 
um, very smooth uh, logistics networks, uh, you know, in terms of transportation, in terms of uh, uh, trade settlements, um, uh, payment system, uh, insurance, you know, these are traditional uh, functions of uh, international trade, all of a sudden being done and handled online uh, and uh, without the, the current processes that in the past that are heavily rely on the banks and other insurance companies. I think, um, uh, you know, the, the digital platform enables these functions to be done in a cost-efficient uh, manner. Um, I think we have learned a lot from that, um, especially uh, you know, companies like Alibaba, you know, they're building this uh, platform for trade uh, between China and other countries. They're also opening up these uh, platforms uh, operating in these countries, enabling um, you know, trade between these countries and China as well. So I think you know, the, the basic infrastructure is surrounding um, around the, um, uh, the platforms these companies are building, as well as the physical, it's not just the online platforms, but as well as the, the physical infrastructures, and as I said, in terms of uh, uh, fast delivery, transportation, warehousing, uh, you know, these physical dis- uh, delivery uh, pieces that are needed uh, to make the transaction complete. Yeah, thank you so much for your insights. Really appreciate your time. Professor Zhang Gong from UIBE for us. Over in the U.S., the roads and airports are jam-packed ahead of this year's Thanksgiving. Karina Mitchell checks out the ongoing travel rush from New York. Well, the travel crush is on in America, and if you're planning to fly either domestically or into the United States, the Transportation Security Administration says Wednesday is one of the three busiest days during the Thanksgiving holiday travel period to do so. In fact, the TSA estimates it will screen a record 30 million passengers by November 28th, that's next Tuesday. But the big question is, will people get to their destination and their Thanksgiving meals on time, given jam-packed airport and bad weather expected to hit in about two dozen states? Severe storms already created havoc in parts of the south, including Mississippi and Louisiana. And in the northeast, rain and gusty winds, along with ice and snow in some areas, made traveling conditions more challenging. So far, only a handful of delays here at LaGuardia, but that didn't stop travelers we spoke to from getting to the airport early. So you're here several hours earlier? Yes, like five. (laughs) I don't want to say five. (laughs) Yeah, I just had to make sure that I gave myself enough time because, yeah, I was aware that, like, it's a crazy busy day um, in terms of the airports and everything, but got to do what you got to do. For one passenger, it wasn't just about getting to the Thanksgiving dinner table on time. He had more on his mind. Uh, my cousin decided to get, to get married on Thanksgiving, so I had no choice. I don't know where we're having Thanksgiving, maybe uh, an Applebee's or something, but uh, hopefully the wedding will, uh, will make up for the travel and will have a good time. American roads will be jammed too. The American Automobile Association, better known in the U.S. as AAA, predicts more than 55 million Americans will be traveling 50 miles or more from home. That's about 80 kilometers. AAA says most people, around 50 million, will be traveling by car. And about one and a half million are expected to jump on a bus or train or take a cruise. Now, the TSA says it expects Sunday to be the busiest travel day of the Thanksgiving holiday. It expects about 2.9 million passengers to travel through security checkpoints at the nation's airports. And if you're planning to drive, AAA suggests making sure to leave early in the morning or after 6 p.m. to beat the worst of the traffic. No matter what, remember to pack your patience. 
at LaGuardia Airport, Karina Mitchell, CGTN, New York. Anyone who flies is familiar with the trend. Add-on fees for everything from extra legroom to priority boarding, pushing the final cost of a flight even higher. There's a theory the airlines employ a business strategy designed to make passengers less comfortable just so they'll fork out funds for these upgrades. CGTN's Niza Soldad Perez has the story. Want to move up from the C or B boarding groups to the first part of the A group? It's easy with upgraded boarding starting at $30 per flight segment. There are many options for upgrades on a flight, but all these extras cost money. Flyers are opening their wallets to pay extra for what used to be the minimum, like seat selection, meal service, or baggage allowance. Airlines know there's money to be made by upselling extras. One Columbia Law School professor famously described his airline strategy as calculated misery, making flying so dreadful that customers are willing to pay more to escape it. If I could pay 1000 US to just get rid of all um, different um, barriers to getting on a flight, I'd pay 1000 US. I, I look at it like it makes sense. If they could charge this, if they could charge it, they, they should, you know? Are you paying a lot to travel with the entire family? Yes. And how are you making sure that all of you are seated together? We pay for seating. <laughs> and it works. Revenue from these extra fees are expected to reach a record $118 billion this year. But this calculated misery principle and implementation has not gotten noticed by unhappy consumers. And passengers say fees are getting worse. Many flyers are reporting being unexpectedly charged for checking in at the airport and printing their boarding passes. It feels like every time you get on a plane, it's like you have to pay, like every... Like, you have to pay a fee for everything. Like, you have to pay for food, for snacks, like things that we used to get before, like sandwich or something. Or, like, it's almost like it's like a tiered kind of experience. Uh, you have the people in economy, you have the people in first class, and then they are now adding different classes in the middle that you could also pay for. So it seems like they're just kind of making it almost worse and even more, like, unbearable to fly. I feel like it's a business, you know. Right now, as more people you can pack in a plane, it's better for them. So it's tough. I mean, I'm, I'm on the side of a business, but on the, on the same side as a user, it's hard. It's, it's getting harder to fly. The issue of fees even made it into this year's State of the Union. And will prohibit airlines from charging $50 round trip for family just to be able to sit together. Baggage fees are bad enough. Airlines can't treat your child like a piece of baggie. Americans are tired of being. We're tired of being played for suckers. But all that torment is not stopping travelers from flying. We're expecting a, a 4% increase over, over last year. It's, um, it's busy. I mean, the, the airport is busy right now. COVID's over and, and people want to get out and about and, and they, they want to travel. Proving that the airline fee strategy is effective for the industry and not likely to disappear anytime soon. Mitza Soledad Perez, CGTN, Miami. And that will do it for this edition of Global Business. I'm Shavendenberg in Beijing.